Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Jen Thornton about creating trust and safety in the workplace and avoiding the talent cliff. Jen Thornton, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have a discussion with you today. You know, as we were preparing for this episode and I was thinking about all the different um, areas that you touch on in your professional work, I thought today we could focus on creating trust and safety in the workplace. You also have this really interesting concept that you like to discuss uh, around avoiding talent cliffs. So we'll uh, talk about that as well. Uh, as we get started, I just wanted to share Jen's uh, bio with everyone. Jen Thornton has developed her expertise in talent strategy and leadership uh, professional development over her, over her exciting 20-plus year career as an HR professional. She's led international teams across greater China, Mexico, the UK, and the US to expand into new markets, managing franchise retailers, and developing key strat, uh, strategic partnerships, all while exceeding business objectives and financial results. The rapid growth of her consulting firm, 304 Coaching, has been largely due to Jennifer's unconventional approach to building innovative workforce development solutions for companies who are facing breakthrough growth and acceleration uh, in hiring patterns. She is a sought-after business strategist specializing in startups and large value-based organizations. She assists her clients in building talent strategies that complement their business strategies to ensure exponential growth. She lives in Texas with her family, and rescues. In her free time, she enjoys reading historic preservation, remodeling her lake home, and spending time with friends. Uh, what a great background. Um, and I'm curious, how many rescue animals do you have? <laughs> As of this minute, there's only five in the house. <laughs> only five. Okay. Only five. We try to keep our numbers down, but if there is a vet in, or a dog in need of a large vet bill, it always finds my front porch. Yeah, well, that's that's really great of you. Um, we we have not been a rescue home. We do have two dogs that we love um, that are part of the family, um, but we definitely have an affinity for animals, and that's that's really awesome that you do that. Uh, well, you know what a great background. It's it's really a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you and your experience spanning um, many years in many different contexts. I think we'll have a really great discussion. Anything else you would like to add by way of personal background, context, anything like that for listeners? Oh, let's see. So um, in my bio, like it says, I've worked across um, multiple continents. And I think that work is really what's led me to what I do today. And 
why I feel like language is so important in our leadership and how we choose our words and how we understand how the brain works. So I think that comes from, you know, being in a room where there's so many different languages and cultures um, interacting. Yeah, I think so. When we find ourselves in those kind of uh, cross-cultural, international types of contexts and situations, it's it, it can be challenging for sure, but it's a real opportunity um, to learn and to grow and to recognize, you know, just all of the the great insights that come from diverse ways of thinking, different backgrounds, uh, different worldviews. Uh, so that's that's really wonderful. And I've traveled quite extensively internationally as well, though probably I haven't spent as much time um, overseas in in these different locations as you have uh, throughout your career. So I'm really excited to have that international flavor uh, added into our conversation today. Um, so I thought we could really just dive in by talking about psychological safety um, and how we create trust and safety in the workplace. You, you have so much experience uh, in all these different contexts, and I suspect that how we develop trust and safety probably depends on the context. It depends on the location, the culture um, of, of the people that we're working with. But what are your initial um, framings for how we as an organizational leader, how we can uh, help to start to create that culture, that context, and protect our workers and help them understand, you know, that they're needed, wanted, valued, that we'll have their back and that we really want to support them to become their best selves. So I think when you start to think about psychological safety, and we're hearing that so much in the world today, you know, it was, you know, emotional intelligence, all these different things. And now I think the buzzword is psychological safety. And when people um, question about that, or what is that, you know, there's a lot of pieces to that. But at the bottom line of that, to create psychological safety, we have to understand how the mind takes in conversation and, re and reacts to it. And so to create psychological safety, we obviously have to create trust. But if you look at some of our older ways of leading, um, it actually creates fear. And if you are a leader that believes that no one should ever see you sweat, you're the person who should always have all the answers. You know, you should be looked at as an expert every single day to maintain your power. Then your language is actually doing the opposite thing of what you want. It's creating fear. And so if you're that leader that walks in and it was like, you know, this, everyone in the boardroom now, this, you know, product is down by 2% and I want to know why. Well, in our old world, that showed command and power, but that actually creates fear. And as soon as we're in our primitive brain, our prefrontal cortex shuts down. Therefore, we can't get innovative. And so I just, you know, I always start with really getting honest about how our brains work and how our language drives it. And then we can start to build from there. Yeah, I think that's really important too. And fear-based leadership isn't actually leadership in my opinion um you know it's it's coercion it's it's management and and certainly there are times there are circumstances in which we need that powerful uh, person to step forward take charge kind of just start helping people understand what they need to do in times of crisis for example that's something that often is very important but on an ongoing basis you know that's not a sustainable model for effective leadership uh, fear-based, it, it drives compliance, it doesn't drive commitment, and it certainly doesn't drive innovation and creativity. And so, you know, 
we're in a knowledge economy and you know we need people who um, can push the edges of our knowledge and understanding uh, people who can constantly be innovating and if they're just waiting around for an order you know fearful to do anything out of their own initiative <laughs> or fear, you know fearful that they'll get um, dinged you know for failure uh, if that's the context you know that's not safe there's no trust and it, it basically will devolve into kind of this micromanaging cesspool of ineffectiveness. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I think we need to get past that. And I think, I think most leaders understand this. I think most leaders want to get past it, but it's, it's one thing to say it and, to, you know, have this kind of conversation like we're doing right now. It's a different thing when you're in a position of leadership and you have that weight on your shoulders and you have everyone looking towards you and all you've ever experienced your whole life are leaders who take that kind of control approach you know, you, you revert back to what you've seen you, you, and what's been modeled for you uh, unless you disrupt, you know, that, that kind of an approach in your own thinking and your own behaviors. Any thoughts on how we can do that? Because it's kind of a natural tendency, I think, for us to revert to that in times of crisis or in times of, you know, stress, anxiety, um, pressure. You know, we, we tend to, to do that because it, it, it's what we know. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, over the last several months, um, you know, we've been doing a lot of crisis management, you know, with um, different, you know, political things that are going on in the environment or with COVID. And, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, when you're in crisis, we have to lead a certain way. Buildings on fire, please get out. I mean, very simple. There's no discussion. Let's all move. But what I'm really seeing right now, which um, kind of, you know, um, took me back when I started to, to watch this in my own clients is because we've been doing so much crisis management, we're starting to get into that habit. And our everyday leadership or lack of leadership is really in that crisis management that you just spoke about. And we can't get into that habit. And when we're in that habit, you know, other things start to fall apart. Um, therefore, we go into even more of a crisis management. And I think that all the people listening to this right now to really think about how have I been managing recently and where are my habits in that? And have I created a habit around crisis management? Yeah, and it really isn't about intention either. You know, we, we can have all the best intentions, but it's, it's about what we're actually doing, what we're modeling to our people, our behaviors, the words we use. Um, because that speaks louder than any intention. And that speaks louder than, you know, even if we send out an email to people saying, you know, we're here for you, we support you, we want to empower you, then everything you do is actually contrary to that. You know, people are going to revert to what they're actually seeing in real time. So, and, and we can have, you know, I have the best intentions, you know, I, and I, but I'm not perfect. So despite my good intentions and despite my efforts, I will still trip up. I'll still do things that probably aren't as effective as they should be. There will be times where that where I have interactions with my people um, that you know isn't empowering and it's not as positive as it should be. That's okay, you know. Like I can own that, and then we can have a discussion. Um, but it, but I need to your point. I need to make sure that I'm thoughtful about it. That I'm that I'm reflective of this, particularly during this unusual time that we're in. Um, you know, if 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 I had like an amazing track record with my employees prior to COVID that doesn't necessarily mean that they still see me as having an amazing track record right now. So we need to just make sure that we're constantly self-evaluating. 
And that's just, that's a healthy practice to be involved in always, anyways, um, regardless of whether we have something like a pandemic or a social unrest, you know, political unrest and those sorts of things happening as well. So what are some of the specific things that we can do then to start developing trust and psychological safety, uh, safety to, to, to innovate, to, to even fail, you know, what, how can we create that kind of a trust within our organizations? So to create that trust, to create the trust where it's okay to fail and it's okay to use your voice and it's okay to have a difference of opinion, leaders have to really think about how do they um, respond to failure and how do they set people up. And so, so often I'll get, I'll talk to an executive and they will say something like, no one on my team will make a decision. And so I'm like, okay, well, let's think about that. So let's look at your behaviors that create fear where people won't make decisions. Oh, no, no, no. They just aren't willing to do it. And so we kind of retrace their steps. And what you know, you always find is how people respond. A lot of times we deliver the information well, we're thoughtful, but then it's our responses that create the fear. And so, you know, if, you know, someone who sets up a situation where I want to hear your ideas, and then someone shares their idea, and then they're judged or punished, or don't say that, that's a hot button, that'll really upset someone, then it's really your responses that are creating the fear. It's not your initial setup. Yeah, yeah. So really what I hear you saying then is that we just need to make sure that we're careful um, at every stage of the communication process, uh, including the follow-up, including those, not just the formal moments, you know, where you're in front of your team, you know, sharing something or you send that email or that memo. Um, but those informal moments, those, those organic moments that happen, you know, when we're actually in an office setting, we, we have those all the time. We kind of bump into each other. We run into each other by the, in the elevator. We're walking by someone's office. We have a, a, a brief conversation. Perhaps that's a little different right now uh, as we're working more distant, you know, virtually from a distance. But we still can have those opportunities for more organic types of conversations. And it's often those organic conversations, those informal opportunities where our guard is down a little bit. We're not thinking about it as carefully and we'll just inadvertently do or say something that's innocent enough. Like, we're, again, no intention, no malice, uh, you know, towards anybody, but it ends up signaling something that's really important to your people. And then, of course, they're going to respond to that in a way, you know if they feel threatened in any way, they're, they're, they're going to revert back to self-preservation. They're going to, particularly in a time of crisis, they're going to revert back to self-preservation. They're going to revert back to making sure that they're protecting their job so they, they can care for their family or, you know, whatever their context may be. Um, so again, intentionality, um, thoughtfulness, recognizing that all of these interactions were, unfortunately, whether we like it or not, when we're a leader, we're always on where, you know, people are always looking to us and there's no point in time where they're not. So if we're, if we're around our people, we need to make sure that we understand that we're signaling things to them constantly. And it's even um, body language is a signal, you know, you'll hear of, you know, you'll see your supervisor come in and by their body language, you're like, oh, they must be having a bad day. 
And so then everyone says, oh, you know, if they're having a bad day, you know, I need to talk to them about this, but I'm going to not talk to them today about this, uh, this problem, or I'm going to tone down my honesty. And so just by walking in the building, people are making decisions on what information they want to share with you based on their perception of what your response could be or the mood that you have. And, you know, again, it's it, like you said, it's those formal and informal, but body language is a huge piece of our communication. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in your comment just then, you kind of referred to something else I know you talk a lot about with, with your clients, and that is these, these power dynamics that happen within our teams. Um, and unfortunately, all I mean, every organization, every group of people has a culture and they have power dynamics. Um, if we want to build trust and we want to have psychological safety, we need to ensure that there aren't any unhealthy types of power dynamics happening, that there's nothing dysfunctional occurring within our teams. Um, but what are some of those typical types of power dynamic issues that you see when you work with executives uh, and their teams, you know, things that we can be aware of and then try to, to correct or, or sidestep in the first place? Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring that up because just this couple of days ago, I had this conversation with an executive and the team is, um, has always been very well connected, very well um, at communicating, supporting each other. It was a really great C-suite group. And, you know, I've worked with them for quite some time and I could notice some things were off and I started, you know, getting curious and asking some questions and what I discovered, and I've seen this happen quite a bit, the CEO um, had gotten in the habit, very busy, a lot going on and got in the habit of relaying information to his direct reports through one specific person. And so instead of calling their direct report and saying, hey, I have some concerns about this. I need to know more about this. Let's have a conversation. He was sending the person he was the most comfortable with out to do his exploration. And then they were becoming the bad guy. And then that person unknowingly was also creating a boundary between the team and their leader. And it was starting to really build some hard um, some hard feelings because why is my peer telling me that my boss isn't happy with my performance? And so they were mad because the CEO wasn't going to be honest with them. And they were mad that someone else was willing to do that for the CEO. And I see that where the CEO kind of pushes their bad news off on someone else because someone else gets to be the bad guy. They still get to be the hero. And it's really, really hard. I mean, it's just one example of a lot of different dynamics, but it's one that's really popped up recently and I'm starting to see. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, it's, it's hard, but ultimately you can't outsource your accountability and responsibility for those tough discussions, those, those difficult conversations. And I'm not, I'm not sure I know of anyone who actually enjoys having challenging conversations with other people. Um, but when you're in a leadership role, that's like one of the main things that's put on your responsibility list is that you have to be able to have those conversations in real time on an ongoing basis with your people and either not like completely just delaying and procrastinating, procrastinating, not having the conversation at all. That's, incredibly problematic for a variety of reasons, but pushing it off on someone else and kind of making them do it as the bad person, you know, that's equally is dysfunctional and it's, it's going to foster all sorts of uh, 
mistrust uh, within your your group. Uh, I, I remember I was talking with an executive, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago now, um, but it, it was it had to do with a really critical HR issue, um, sexual harassment um, issue facing uh, a VP level position, and trying to coach the HR, uh, the VP of HR, and then the CEO, who the CEO really had to be the one to to deal with this other vice president who was the the perpetrator. Um, it, it couldn't just be passed off or handed off to the HR person, but the HR person was there with them. You know, they, they were there as part of the conversation to be a support and to even prepare them role play. You know, how can we go about doing this? Um, and then eventually, you know, when they, they have the meeting, they do all this preparation. When they have the meeting, the CEO just immediately turns it back over to the HR person and says, you know, so-and-so now has something to tell you um, and completely sidestepping it. And of course it didn't go well. Um, and so those are t the types of situations where you really, as uncomfortable as it's going to make you, you really do just have to step forward and own it. Um, and it's okay, you know, if someone doesn't like you, um, people will understand uh, if you're consistent, if you're fair, uh, and they, they want to see that in their leaders. They want to see someone who's willing to do the hard things, who's willing to have the tough conversations, who's willing to tell it as it is, someone who's willing to be honest and open with them. Um, and if we can't do that, it's gonna be really hard to foster openness, transparency, trust within our people below us. Yeah, and you know, and being willing to have those conversations and you know, think when you're going to have a difficult conversation, make sure that you start with the end in mind. And at the end of this conversation, what does this person need to not only hear from me, but how do I need them to to think about this experience? And then how do you start there? I think the hardest thing for people is like, how do I even start this conversation? I'm like, we start it with the end in mind because then we back up that conversation from there. But, you know, not really stopping and thinking about what does this piece, piece this person need to hear? What does this person need to understand? Is this, um, do they need to understand that this is so serious that if they choose to do it again, they will lose their job? Or, it, you know, that was a policy violation we just talked about, but is it a skill set issue? Is it a development issue? Really starting to think about that. And remember that they're human and we have to constantly humanize people. And that humanization helps those conversations go in a different way. So even when someone has done something incredibly serious, like a policy violation, like, you know, sexual harassment is at the executive level, we still have to humanize them and have a conversation with another human. And when you go in blustered and mad and blown up, then that's what they're going to remember. They're not going to remember your concern and your, um, your viewpoints on the situation and how you will not tolerate going forward. The story in their head is going to be about how you entered that room all blown up, not what you actually said. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, so we've talked about psychological safety and trust. We've talked a little bit about uh, interpersonal dynamics, power dynamics within teams. I know you also do a lot around this idea of the talent cliff in your work. Um, tell us a little bit about what you mean by that. What's the talent cliff and how do we avoid that? Um, and how do we do proactive uh, talent management within our organization? 
So, you know, you think about those startups and, you know, when an organization starts up, there is a really good chance, or it wouldn't have been successful at the startup phase, that the individuals managing the organization, their skill is far exceeds their revenue, their needs, um, how to manage that business, because that 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 delta of their experience being higher of the revenue helps create that revenue growth. So what we see happens is when you have some, you know, a team that's so much more dynamic than where we are, our revenue when we start, the revenue always takes off because again, we're leading the needs of the company. Our skills are better than the company. But what happens is we start chasing the business plan that doesn't have a talent strategy in it. So we start chasing profit, top line sales, our next investor, you know, all of that stuff that we have to chase to have a profitable business, but we forget to take our talent along the journey with us. And we don't invest as much, if not more in our talent as we do in our business plan. Then what happens, because we were so fantastic in the beginning, but now we're starting to slide, the revenue actually outpaces, the business needs outpace the skill set of those managing it. And when that happens, your good people are going to leave because they're not going to work in crisis management. The people who are staying are in crisis management. If they're more you know, of an individual contributor, they're probably the yes sir, no ma'am type folks, which isn't going to drive your business. Then what you start to see is your talent kind of goes off a cliff. It was rising straight up and growing, but then all of a sudden it starts to fall off. And then as soon as your talent falls off and your talent no longer exceeds what is needed to run the business, then your sales are right behind it. And that's what happens with startups when they do not invest in their people. Well, yeah, sustainability and scalability is a real challenge uh, for any organization within any industry. And you add to it this, this uh, type of dynamic that you were just describing. Um, most startups simply don't have a talent strategy. Um, you know, the, the founders, they have, you know, they're, if it's a tech company, perhaps they, they're great, um, great at coding and they have some new really cool um, app or, you know, whatever this new innovation is, they're, they're, they're filling a, a gap in the market or, or creating a new need in the market or whatever. Um, so they have all these skills, all this talent, um, but as you grow and scale, inevitably, you have to focus on your people. You have to have a talent strategy. And it's not necessarily the founding team or even that, that growing smaller team that uh, has the people management know-how or capabilities. Uh, I, I see it all the time as well. And it, it blows my mind how often you'll see some of these um, companies with so much potential and they start to then just like, there, there's one locally, we, we have, we're kind of a tech hub here where I'm at, um, uh, kind of a playoff of Silicon Valley, we call it Silicon Slopes, and there's lots of tech companies, and we're one of the, the highest um, areas in the country for tech entrepreneurship and, and such. And there was a, a big tech company uh, that was just experiencing exponential growth, doing awesome, until about a year ago, and then all of a sudden they announced 50% layoffs, right? Uh, and it's exactly what you were just describing. They just simply didn't have the people capabilities to continue to sustain that kind of growth. And it eventually caught up with them, and, and you know, they've, they've been having to try to deal with that since then. So uh, 
absolutely, we want to avoid that talent cliff. We want to make sure that we're embedding our people strategy, our talent management strategies right into the business plan, right into everything else that we're doing and make sure that that's a focus even from the early stages of the development of a company um, if we want to have a chance to scale and grow. Yeah. And it's so sad. I see it all the time. And, you know, just imagine all the amazing um, concepts that didn't survive um, that, you know, could have had years and years of growth. And it amazes me also that investors will look at a business plan and say, yeah, here's $10 million, but they don't ask, what are you, I, I, these are great ideas. Who's physically going to do this? How are you supporting them? Because we'll say, how are you going to produce this widget? Who's going to make the widget? But no one stops and says, who are ma who's making decisions for this company? And what kind of support are we giving them so they can handle the, the mental stress and the mental game and that they can stay in vision and stay out of the, the stuff? And then, you know, who's on your team today that's a rising star that in five years, maybe they are an up and coming leader in the marketing world. What support do they need over the next five years? So maybe they can be your chief marketing officer. They're just not there now, but what could we do with them in five years? What are their experiences need to be? Um, but yeah, it just it fascinates me that someone will hand over $10 million and not once ask, what are you doing about the people who will actually use this money and will actually make decisions on it? Yes, absolutely. Well, Jen, it has been a real pleasure. This time has flown by. Uh, we're already nearing the end of our time together today, but before we finish our conversation, I did want to make sure that I gave you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about what you're doing currently, and just give us the last word on the topic for today. Yeah, so it was such a pleasure to talk about all these different ideas with you today. And if you would like to continue the conversation, you can find me on LinkedIn at Jennifer Thornton, ACC. You can also uh, look at some of our talent strategy um, ideas and how we do this at 304coaching.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. So many really great and fascinating topics that we discussed today, and I appreciate your expertise and sharing that with my listeners. I hope everyone will reach out to Jen, get connected on LinkedIn, uh, find out more about what she and her company can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.